0: bye Hi, I'm Dave Kittrich, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and this is The Outcast, presented by Outfest, where we have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. Today I am so thrilled to have the multi-hyphenate, award-winning actor, writer, director, producer, musician, almost any creative medium you can do with moving images or sound, he's done. Most notably, the Off-Broadway Then On-Broadway musical, which is also an acclaimed feature film which he directed, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And last year, he forged ahead in yet another medium, this one, a 10-part narrative podcast called Anthem Homunculus, which is amazing, and got rave reviews and is now available on the podcast streaming service Luminary, John Cameron Mitchell.
1: Hello. (laughs)
0: <laughs> joining us is, <laughs> thank you for coming. Joining us is John's collaborator and co-composer on anthem homunculus Brian Weller.
2: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: And joining us as well as someone I know from thirty years ago at NYU. Should I even say that? I don't even know. Uh, in a very different New York City, and has since gone on to edit amazing television and, and movies such as Trick, Tarnation, Lackawanna Blues, Shadow Boxer, The Savages, Kill the Messenger, We the Animals, as well as John Cameron Mitchell's Short Bus and How to Talk to Girls at Parties which I just saw for the first time the other day and was just completely blown away by. Uh, and now the podcast, Anthem Homunculus, Brian Cates. Hi,
1: thrilled that you have me here. Thank, Thank you.
0: you guys for doing this. I am so excited. So, John, let me start with you. One of the most interesting things about you is how many different media you have attacked and kind of made your mark on. Uh, everything from musicals and music to uh, now a podcast, feature films. What's your kind of philosophy when you approach a project? What, like, leads you to it?
3: I tend not to do too many things at the same time. Certainly not the same things. Like I can't write two things or, you know, direct two things. So I, I do complementary things. So I might be producing, for example, my brother's narrative podcast while preparing a pitch for, a, you know, a, a TV project, while acting in shrill, while writing songs with Brian Weller, while mixing with Brian Cates. So I love to do all kinds of stuff, use different parts of my brain and body, Performing, I, I didn't do for 15 years after Hedvig, but weirdly, Lena Dunham with a text brought me back to acting. And, uh, and now it's the acting is for pure fun, you know, doing concert tours, the Origin of Love tour. And, you know, uh, during COVID writing songs with people remotely with strangers, you know, that I meet on the Internet or on Grindr or whatever. You know, it's like it's all it's all possible. And, I want to know what
0: kind of songs you write on Grinder.
3: Well, it's you meet peop people are on grinder who with, you know, non sexual element you know, <laughs> facets of their relationship. You know, even today I was mixing a song that I wrote with a guy in France who I met online and also Amber Martin and I, who collaborate a lot, was sending me her songs with PJ Du Bois, who's been collaborating with her. He's he was in Shortbus and Yeah, I remember. Yeah. I love our circle of friends because Brian Cates, who had never done a podcast came in with these incredible skills to a world that didn't necessarily have those skills and i knew that i had to have someone like him with his musical storytelling and technical skills to do it in avid uh the program avid and then we'd have to switch it over to pro tools so we did a very film version in effect anthem homunculus that brian and i wrote is is really as complex as a as Hedvig, but it's five and a half hours of it and with no visuals. So we pushed the form in a more cinematic direction. It's like the Berlin
0: Uh, Alexander plots of of podcasts. It really is. And
3: just as many people have seen it. (laughs) (laughs) Very few. Partly because we're on a subscription-based platform, Luminary, who've been great. But it'll always be there, and I'm sure we'll make it into another form, you know, whether it's TV or theater. And actually, Brian Weller is a longtime friend who uh, was assisting me on How to Talk to Girls at Parties when we suddenly needed a songwriter for the punk band. And he, with Martin Thompson, created that band and the songs for it, as well as other songs, uh, probably about six songs for How to Talk to Girls. Yep. So when it was time to uh, to do uh, Anthem, I, was, I didn't look f- too far. I was like, Brian, let's... Now, let's be partners now instead of me hiring you. And it was a a match made in heaven.
0: Brian Weller, tell me how you initially met John and got Mm -hmm. involved with, I guess, at first, How to Talk to Girls at Parties and and then Anthem Homunculus.
2: Yeah, I was living in Portland, Oregon. And in 2011, I was planning on moving to New York from Portland, where I'd been a few years. I'd been for six years and I was about done. With my time there, I'd graduated from college, and the reasons for being there seemed to be growing short at that time in my life. And I met John coincidentally uh, just a month before moving, and it was at a Mattachine, which is his DJ night, and we hit it off. We had a nice evening together till the sun came up, and then... I ended up moving and we became friends and we were friends for years before any actual work came along. Uh, and I assisted on a TV project and on the Hedvig when John was on stage for Hedvig on Broadway. And that, I mean, it was just kind of gig after gig and, and then the How to Talk to Girls, which the script had been being written and rewritten ever since I moved to New York. And so in 2015, it was finally time to produce it. So
0: I, I just have to say... When I knew that we were going to do this interview, I, you know, did my research, like the diligent, you know, whatever I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, A journalist. I had not seen How to Talk to Girls at Parties.
2: Yeah.
0: It's on Amazon Prime. And I had been told by my film friends... You should see this. You're into like, cause I I tend to like, you know, I I'm a big fan of Southland Tales. Not many people are. I'm a big fan <laughs> of movies like you know Miami Vice, and, mm-hmm. and there are movies that like kind of push push boundaries. Like you know, it's basically me and Manola Dargis who like these movies. I think almost nobody else does. <laughs> but this movie, it got kind of mixed reviews, um, and it and it came out in like only a few theaters and it just went away and I was like well that's a shame because I was looking forward to that I sat down to watch it it is a magical movie it is like it is now like the epitome to me of like the top five movies that were like great and like somehow bizarrely did not catch on and it's like this movie needs to be rediscovered it's on Amazon Prime right now everybody please go see this how to how to talk to girls at parties it's based on a Neil Gaiman short story and Brian Cates you edited it so it's like you're all involved with this I just want to talk about this for a moment because I was so 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 taken with it
3: thank you we felt it was our you know kind of YA sci-fi romance you know it's punks falling in love with aliens in the 70s London you know then it becomes punks versus aliens but there's like all of my stuff I, I I love playing with genre, having fun with music and, and comedy and animation. But there's always an emotional undercurrent and, and themes that punk is a, a good virus as opposed to the COVID. You know, the one that makes you stronger and more empathetic and more just is how Anne, the, the, the star, looks at it. And we brought in friends like Nicole Kidman, Ruth Wilson, Matt Lucas. Amazing. All of them. L Fanning. They're all just so fun. We had a blast doing it. You know, it's just not the time of the small film right now. Um, the small, you know, unusual film without, you know, nonstop stars and very recognizable genre. And none of my films actually fit into any perfect genre. They m- maybe fit into 70s midnight movie vibe because that's how I grew up. But um. But that's
0: the that's the genius. Yeah,
3: i disappointed when people didn't take to it because maybe ten years earlier people would have. Even a film like another crowd pleasing film like Patty Cakes, you know, mm-hmm. that um. Patty Cakes is great. It's a great yeah. Napoleon Dynamite-y, fun outsider teenage comedy with. It got music. sold
0: for a ton out of Sundance, and then it came out, and no. like nobody saw it. It was very very it. odd.
3: Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, but it's not necessarily that time. You know, people seem to have lost their imagination for small films, and they're not going to see them, so they're not being financed. As certainly now they're not, um, but even last year. So I got disillusioned with you know I still love film, of course, but get disillusioned in putting my energies in there. And um, you know, both Brian Cates and I have been foraying more into TV over the last you know couple of years. Brian worked on uh, The Plot Against America, and he worked on Treme before that with David Simon. And I'm developing two ideas for television, one of which is based on a book, a beautiful book, and the other is my own story about a circus that declares itself an independent nation mm. to avoid being raided by ICE. Um, so the land they're on you know, was missed in the Louisiana Purchase, so they, uh, they just declare it, uh, which feels very germane right now so it
0: feels a little even cowgirls get the blues ish
3: yeah but it's less kind of surreal and and more like satire a, a heartfelt satire you know like something like network or wag the dog or something you know it's, you know but the characters are not you know the, the main characters are not just people that you really root for so it's an idea of america uh, the metaphor of A Circus for America seems like a better metaphor than most lately, of course.
0: <laughs> so I understand that the genesis of the podcast that would become Anthem Homunculus was a sequel to Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which, as a huge fan, I would love to see. But Brian Weller, can you walk me through kind of like how it evolved from from the sequel to Hedwig to being its own entity?
2: Uh, um, so it, there was a beginning of the, the script... Uh, as a Hedvig sequel, and that was, the idea for that was going away, and the idea of sort of a more unveiled autobiographical story was, se- seemed to be the more salient idea in John's mind, and he had asked me in early 2016, after we had wrapped the the shooting of How to Talk to Girls, to co-create it with him, to compose the music, he said that he wanted to sort of be at the helm of the lyrics, but he said the music was kind of my domain. And sometime in September, I think, uh, we took that road trip and we went to Colorado and Kansas and Nebraska and kind of swung around to the, the West Coast, but spent most of the time in Kansas at Burroughs' house. You wrote
0: in William Burroughs' house?
2: I knocked on the door, actually, uh, Burroughs' yes. door, and
3: Tom King, the caretaker, was like, gruffly, what the hell, what? You know, apparently that happens once in a while, and I said, "I'm I'm writing a musical that might take place on this porch," and he's like, "All right, come in." <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that one. And then Brian and I bonded with Burroughs' partner, uh, James Gowerth Holtz, and he invited us to write in Burroughs' house. You know, I was in the garden, and Brian was in the living room uh, writing the music.
0: That's amazing. Yep and and you got Ben Foster to play William S Burroughs in in the podcast.
3: Yes, we were looking around and I knew Ben he had actually done an early readings of this piece, Anthem, when it was more of a Hedvig sequel, and he was playing Tommy, who by then was heroin-addicted, fat, and uh, faked his suicide. So oh, could...
0: no! Well, well speaking on behalf of that. all the fans, I, I I hope for better for Tommy Nosis I really do. I did. know.
3: Well, he wanted to get back with Hedvig, so that, that, that was the easiest way, is to erase his fame. <laughs> and Brian, from way back, how do we meet Brian Brian Cates.
1: Uh, through a mutual friend, John Bruce, also through Jim Lyons, mm-hmm. who was is, who is Todd Haynes's both longtime editor and boyfriend at the time. I was um, an apprentice editor and sort of a quasi-post coordinator on the, on Todd's movie Safe. That's how I knew Jim.
3: Which I was cast in but couldn't do because it would pay too little.
1: Which
0: role?
3: Uh, is that my J- James Lagro role, actually. Oh, wow. Wow.
0: Wow that's something I actually did not know that I thought I knew a lot about that movie but I did not know that
3: I love that movie it's very COVID isn't it about Julianne Moore going into hiding becoming allergic to everything
0: it's like a COVID in all of our heads really it's like the, mm-hmm. the, the uh-huh. mental and spiritual the COVID. paranoia yeah I read in the New York Times piece that Anthem Homunculus was recorded largely over seven weeks in 2018, but the editing and mixing took an enormously longer time than that. Can you kind of speak to, you know, the difference between and how this kind of was made in post a lot of it? Well, we kept writing,
1: I mean, or I should say John kept writing, based on what we built in the edit. So it was. It was. It was just an extremely malleable text. We had. We knew what the story was. We knew where all the characters were going, what their arcs were, and for the most part, what the songs were. Although some songs um, were created in post, or not created in post, mm-hmm. were commissioned in post. I should say, right, right
2: Somehow, we we're all these musicians were in the studio, and I said, "Well, we have this piece. Let's just record it." And so that uh, State Road's the mm-hmm. one you're talking about, State and Road. Al- also, yep. um. Toy Train from episode two was another one where I just said, We haven't rehearsed this. It's pretty simple. Let's just record it and then it ended up getting used. So Oh know.
1: yeah, and the another big one is we included a new song for Patty Lapone, <laughs> yeah. which was based on a, a sketch. Um if you got that... Patty Lupone, you might as well. Yeah, it was a score song. piece. Hey, it was hey, a I, score I mean, piece
2: originally. So the music was there <laughs> and...
1: Yeah, Brian wrote a g- gorgeous um how do you want to explain it? Like it's a like, like a, a Coltrane like ballad, um, but he slowed it down into in, to a ballad's tempo. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and right. Yeah, they wrote we're, lyrics.
2: Yeah, there were a bunch of different versions. We did kind of a freak, like a free jazz version of it too. I just had the band just do all kinds of stuff. Um, so mm-hmm. there were options.
1: The themes were always in the original script, but focusing them and giving them the right emphasis was not necessarily. Known until we started cutting and building the show. So, in this case, yeah, an entire new sequence um, with three scenes and uh, a, a new musical number were invented after we were editing. And uh, we had a day with Patty in August, and uh, she came in and recorded the song, recorded the scenes. So, yeah, um, extreme malleability and
0: creativity in the writing process, which included the songwriting process. If you haven't heard it, um, you know, the main character, Kian, He's an unreliable narrator. He has a brain tumor, um, and he kind of goes in and out of consciousness, in and out of various states which may or may not exist. And ostensibly, we're hearing his podcast, which he is live streaming to raise money to for to remove his brain tumor, to get his brain tumor removed. Um, but it's not the podcast because we slipstream into his past, into alternate dimensions, uh, into planets made of meat. Uh, it's like all sorts (laughs) of stuff. Yeah. For instance. Um, and, and the unreliable narrator, uh, you know, it requires a lot of sound effects. It requires a lot of different treatments of sound. How much of that, Brian, uh, did you kind of put in the cut before it was kind of handed off into Pro Tools? Good question. That was the joy of it. I mean, I did not do it alone by any means. It's sort of like we had
1: two picture editors, even though there was no picture. And the other one was Ellie Muni. And we did a large amount of this sort of formatting and structuring of the sound design, with the help of Kate Belinsky, who built a lot of um, backgrounds that she gave to us for the planets and and such. But a lot of the the nitty gritty um, toilets and footsteps and wind and birds and you know, uh, Ali and I would would build those in the Avid because that's all that's all you got. Like you know, it's we're yeah, very, we didn't um, use
3: much foley, which for those who don't know, that's when. Foley artist goes into a studio and makes the crunching footsteps and the touching the glass and all of those things. You know, that's original sound uh, that we make, uh, you know, ourselves. But they used a lot of library stuff. Yeah. And we never ended up going into Foley, I don't believe. Like, I had to make a triple heartbeat, which was not in a library because, you know, the, the homunculus <laughs> has three hearts or two hearts. So I, I just... uh made a sound I used to make as a kid t- t- to horror movie sound, which was
0: <laughs> Oh wow, that's so
3: But then I made it into a triple one so it's <laughs> and then Brian would, would make it more bassy and Greg Switlowski, our supervising sound designer, I guess, you know, would do other things to it and add elements. So we uh-huh. we really had a team, an s- edit and sound team of about
1: Five? Five also people. Steve Bone, Tim Korn, Eric Hirsch.
3: Yeah. Also. Along with two, uh, three great assistants doing a hell of a lot of work. So it was kind of like a making a, a really small film. And we probably did it more expensively than most because we came from the film side. And sometimes these narrative podcasts have one person doing it all, including recording and even composing. So meanwhile, Brian Weller, maybe you could... Mm-hmm. S- tell what you were doing while we were recording actors and starting the edit?
2: Well, I think the whole recording process started with our laying down basic tracks, which was just the sort of bare bones band. And then then we laid down some vocals for Cynthia Revo and Nakane and you, possibly John, in that period. And then over the following months, while you were all both recording dialogue and then beginning the edit assemblies and, and making decisions in that, I was overdubbing the basic tracks of the music with horns and string orchestras and singers and all kinds of other bells and whistles, as well as going into a smaller studio to record all the score, which was also fun. Um, and we were all... It was a ton of music. Yeah. I mean, with that, we were, with score in particular, that was sort of a process of finding the way, but I had a great time with, we we had a great studio in Red Hook called Atomic Sound, which had a bunch of isolation booths. So, every separate element of the songs we could kind of break apart just completely isolated from the rest and you repurpose for different parts of the entire story different score cues it was a lot of fun. I I, I learned a lot in that and I had a lot of fun uh,
1: which I love too because it was extremely plastic and malleable so um, I would have all these stems and we would need them because we would be rewriting the script literally every day because Mm -hmm. you know when you don't have picture to sync to um, You're more you flexibility. Can be, you can be flexible. You can be inventive, and we, we sort of were um, not originated, but we were a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of working by ourselves at home, and sending things <laughs> and never seeing each other, because we were all we were all at home. Um, we never really had an editing room other than my 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 dining room table, and you know John was on tour doing uh, um, the Origin of Love show. You were in South Korea, I think. You were in Australia. And the work continued. He would write at night, which was um, the the opposite time in New York, and he would send me files, and I would would build in dialogue, and then the assistant would string them out and add them to the bank of other dialogue, like a constantly growing database of versions of lines. Because there's a lot of
3: re-recording you need to do for story. When you have a film, you tend to have more time with the script and then you, you know, you shoot the film and you improvise and things happen on set. But, and then you do what's called ADR, which is looping when someone comes in and does some more sound to fix the sound. But in our case, we were re-recording constantly to fix things and clarify story. And I would go, I had my own mic, you know, and I could do that at home with a pillow in front of me, you know, or towel over my head. And then if we had Glenn Close or Patti LuPone who had to do a line they would gamely shout into their iPhone with a towel over their head and just email it. And then we drop it in the mix, you know. For, for sound
0: quality. Oh, that's yeah. magical Not though. So it
3: could often work.
0: One of the big questions I did have, which you touched on is when I was listening to it, because it sounds so tight,
2: mm-hmm. how
0: much of this script was really kind of on the page when you started it and how much of it developed during the recording and during the post-production? I would say that
3: <laughs> 85% was on the page When I work with actors, I often encourage them to paraphrase their lines and make them more comfortable in their mouth, which I've always done, you know, especially starting with Short Bus. And we had very experienced actors who take to the audio acting very quickly. I mean, there's not a big shift in the kind of acting. So we had super professional people, you know, Cynthia Rivo, Dennis O'Hare, Marion Cotillard did her doctor bit on, you know, remotely from a studio in Paris. Laurie Anderson, the queen of sound. We we're like who who plays the homunculus? Who plays Kean's tumor? And oh my like, god,
0: that was so perfect. <laughs> that know. was so perfect. I <laughs> just Anderson. saw her before the 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 quarantine. I just saw her at the Walt Disney concert hall, like what, three oh. months ago or whenever she was there? Um she Lucky. is still magical Brilliant. unbelievable. Yeah. Amazing. I mean it was a completely dynamic and hypnotic experience, as is almost everything i've ever seen her do i mean if if, if by the way if and if, if you guys out there are not familiar with laurie anderson go to youtube
3: and just watch and, oh, and oh, watch go oh superman oh watch "O superman
0: it's amazing oh superman is the most unlikely top 10 hit i think in history
3: uh-huh. i know next to that nun who sang the lord's prayer um, <laughs> the, <laughs> it's incredible but it's absolutely hypnotic visually and sound wise and she is the she was an innovator in many ways. You know, she and Yoko Ono, I think, are undersung. You know, as great innovators in all kinds of art, and she remains, a, you know, a beautiful and wonderfully kind person. Oh, that's you know, so she good took, to hear. Yeah, she took Brian and I under her wings, and was just so generous and you know there for us, and thrilled by the final. Effect. fact, we did a uh, Anthem Homunculus Marathon listening party at IFC Cinema where, you know, we did all 10 episodes with breaks and dinner breaks and, you know, blankets and gift bags. And, and gorgeous animations, yeah. Yeah, oh. Oh, yes. Our friend um, Michael Zumbrun did some incredible visuals uh, that with using program, you know, like very abstract. And... I've done it in other cities. I was about to do it in L.A. when it shut down. But um, she was there with uh, Hal Wilner, you know, who's a legendary musical figure, You know, was the Saturday Night Live music supervisor when they would... You know, he in just passed on. 70s and 80s when they... He just passed on because of COVID. Because of COVID, of COVID yeah. Was, uh, right, horrible. I managed to have a small friendship with him and he recorded me doing a T-Rex song for his, his tribute album that's coming out soon. Which one? I think it's like something-headed hipsters. What's that? <laughs> What's that line from Ginsberg? Like tornado-headed tornado hipsters. But, uh-huh. you know, like my song comes after you 2 with Elton John. Wow. You know, doing Bang a Gong. <laughs> um, but it's an incredible lineup. And But these are the people who are in New York. These are, this is the good New York, creating something new. I'm still feeling a lot of energy even in this COVID time because... People are, you know, I've been writing songs with people remotely and mixing and, you know, want to come out with a little EP for benefit, you know, to benefit COVID charities of COVID anthems, maybe. But our anthem series will hopefully continue. Each season will be a completely different musical by different people. Oh, wow. You know, so people are pitching us, uh, not as many as I'd like, you know, we haven't found our perfect candidate yet. But it's a form that you know, should continue. And and obviously with the COVID thing, it's, it's much more popular just because you can do it safely.
0: Do you want to know more about OutFest? Of course you do. You're listening to this podcast. OutFest is the only LGBTQIA arts, media and entertainment nonprofit organization in the world whose programs empower artists, communities, and filmmakers alike to transform the world through their stories, while also supporting the entire life cycle of their career, from outset to legacy. And what that means is, it is one of the largest LGBT film festivals in the world, and one of the largest film festivals in North America. Also, Outfest has a tremendous number of programs for young filmmakers, as well as archivists preserving gay stories for all time. It is a truly outstanding organization, and especially right now, we would love your help. Please go to outfest.org and learn how you can become a member of this fantastic organization. Right now during COVID, I know all of my creative friends are kind of reaching out, checking in on each other, trying to figure out a way to kind of take this time to get stuff done because most creatives I know, including myself, you know, you're in normal times before this whole thing, it's like, oh, if only I had the time to do this, only if, if I only had the time to do whatever. A lot of people, including myself, uh, it's difficult. It's really difficult because there's a pallor of stress. There's a pallor of of uncertainty underneath all of it. And most of the conversations I've been having with friends is just like, don't beat yourself up. Just do what you can. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. At first I was like, I've got to be productive. And then I just cooled out, cooked, you know, got healthy. Lost seven pounds. Ooh, congrats. Good work, John. Um,
1: (laughs) They they weren't there to lose.
3: No, but, you know, doing things I don't usually do that I knew I would love to, you know, like cook. And then the other stuff came, you know, I didn't push myself. Brian Cate's, has a full job right now yeah i'm editing a
1: documentary right now so i feel i feel like time is speeding by because uh i do want to do those other things and i and i'm anxious obviously and and i'm and i'm sad about the state of the country, particularly but the world and there's no time in in a a way so i'm trying to be gentle with myself i'm trying to watch some movies i that are on my my list to check off like Corel. i'd never seen i watched it last night
0: Oh, I, amazing! I,
1: it's on Criterion Channel, I think. I know yeah. it is. Um, that was, uh, yeah.
0: That's a that's mandatory. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Weller, how are you? How are you? Kind of getting through this period?
2: Well, uh, for the start of it, I was in Seattle because my father had open heart surgery. Uh, coincidentally, right when it was all really heating up, so it was a very strange. Like I think a lot of my stress was sort of centered around that, and I was concerned about infecting him because back then there was no stay at home order even though seattle was the epicenter Mm -hmm. and right around the time i was finally going to get back to new york they switched and new york became the epicenter so that was very strange but do you feel responsible for switching them yeah (laughs) it's everywhere i've been as follows i'm i'm the cause but um where are you now I'm in New York. I'm in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. But all okay. my stuff was in New York. So when I got back, I kind of had this release. I, I was recording a ton of music. I was, I mean, I think in a way the, the productivity was a means to stave off a kind of desolation. Um, or it became that. Yeah. Sort right. of like having something at the end of every day sort of uh, was the token that the day existed and was worthwhile. And if I didn't have that, then I would would become like the evening would be very um antsy and stressed out anxious i so i've lost a little steam on that and i guess i would that that my answer to your question of how to go about it would be in some ways i feel that it's similar to any other time in that you one has spurts of energy and so a lot of people may have come into the whole quarantine thing slightly different than me without having the father health issue and the change of location Factor, But I my hope is that as this continues, that everyone's energy can rise, like the things that they want to do, they'll find that the energy, maybe when the sun comes out, instead of being able to go out with a a bunch of people into the park, they can take that vitamin D and put it into the project they always wanted to make.
3: Or you could do what I did this morning and and watch uh, a lot of YouTubes about uh, various bugs fighting in a terrarium. (laughs) Murder locusts? Yes. I mean, the mantis versus the murder hornet was breathtaking. (laughs) It was very dramatic.
0: You guys touched on something that I wanted to ask about, especially with regard to this podcast, and it's the you know, basically how much personal influence goes into this. And I'd read enough kind of, you know, researching this to know, John, that a lot of this came from personal loss that you were, you, you were coping with or, you know, either far back or more recent. Um, Can you kind of touch on what role your own personal influence and working out stuff that you're working on goes into your work?
3: It's just the best way to deal with stuff, you know, is is creativity and, It's actually the only antidepressant I know is actually making something, you know, using your imagination to make something. It's way better than a pill. We all need a pill at times, but that's in order to get to the the place of imaginative productivity, not just productivity, but solving things with your imagination. And, you know, I, I lost my boyfriend in 2004 who was the bass player in Stephen Trask's band where we developed Hedvig, and he had an addiction problem. I lost my brother when I was 14. I lost, you know, my father more recently, but that's more of a natural thing. But, you know, death was always my companion. And even as a kid, I was very aware of mortality. And, you know, at 20, my favorite playwright was Beckett. So, it, it's just there, and, but Beckett's way of laughing into the void was also very useful to me. So the Hedvig sequel really came out of dealing with Jack's death through the voice of Hedvig, which seemed a convenient mouthpiece, but, you know, she has her own baggage. So I, I removed her from the story uh, about someone doing a crowdfunding telethon. I removed her uh, like a tumor, and the character became me, but a version of me—if what would I be like if I'd never left my small town? So it's a kind of alternate autobiography. You know, it's it's real up to maybe 18, and then everything after that is invented. But pretty much all the characters are based on people in my life. You know, Glenn Close plays my mom. Dennis O'Hare is my dad. Nakane, who is a incredible South African uh, music person, uh, it's N-A-K-H-A-N-E. He has an amazing song with anoni called new brighton check that out but he's uh i met him on uh, on instagram you know i heard about a film he was in couldn't get through to him heard his music thought it was brilliant his amazing voice and uh, dm'd him on instagram and he said oh i was just looking at short bus you know (laughs) so it's a small queer world
0: and let's just talk about Short Bus for a moment because we haven't yet. Brian, Cates, you edited Short Bus. Uh, I know people. Best who job of my Short... life. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, well, one of the most profound experiences. Absolutely. Hmm. It came about, and and you guys can talk about this, but it came about in a very unconventional way. Um, you put an ad, John, correct, in the paper.
3: Yes. Well, you know the paper. <laughs>
0: the paper. Well, which paper? A it was in the Village Voice. It, oh, it was a, a voice. A
3: I used a few. I used, remember the L? Oh, yes. In York, the L, yes. You New York. Yes. That was the uh, Williamsburg hipster paper. I sort <laughs> of reached out to all the, the usual suspects, mostly in New York. I think L, we did LA Weekly, too. Um, I just did cold emails and said, look, I'm doing this thing. You want to write about it to publicize my audition process, which is anyone could send in a tape. It was VHS at the time. And to audition is to talk about an emotional sexual experience so that, you know, right away we knew we weren't just making porn, which tends to be drained of emotion and often formulized the way Hollywood, you know, the way you have sex in porn is often very standardized. You know, you do this, then you do that, then you come on someone's face, and then, you know. uh, And then the woman does a fake orgasm if it's a woman. So this was a reaction to porn but also reaction to other films some of which were great like Fat Girl came out of France Battle in Heaven came out of Mexico Brown Bunny came out of America mm-hmm. for better or worse these films were using unsimulated sex they all tended to, it all tended to be very grim humorless and depressing which of course sex can, can be connected to those things you know they were valid and i think Fat Girl is brilliant but others were just dull to me. And it was our version of a radical, fairy-inspired scene. You know, our friend Stephen Kent Jusic, who, who ran the Mix Experimental Film Festival, used to have something called Cine Salon, like as in cinephile. And he would show 16 millimeter films at his house, and there would be vegetarian food and pop brownies, and then there would be sometimes sex. And he encouraged it to be, you know, in that public living room rather than hiding out in the bathroom or whatever. And it was fascinating to me that all of these things, food, art, sex, were equivalent and available at the same place. So that led to Short Bus, the salon where Justin Vivian Bond is the mistress, you know, of the, of the scene. And it was shot at a place called Dumba, which was traditionally a queer kind of arts collective in Dumbo. Where at the time we were shooting, it was in its last legs. It was often women of color living there, and many of them ended up in the film. And you know, it was our radical fairy friends. And my friend James Coppola was the sextras coordinator. And you know, <laughs> I was challenged to join in the orgy because you know, so I can be <laughs> my socialist. You know, one of the one of the folks as one is as one is. And I was told that I would either have to get fucked up the ass or eat pussy. <laughs> Um, and I chose the latter and it was uh, one of the people who lived at Dumba and it was she was delicious. Two takes. <laughs> and one of her songs ended up in the soundtrack. So it was a group effort. Everyone's <laughs> work. You it's a know, group sex effort. From pussy to music. It was all welcome. And it was a great experience which probably couldn't be done today because we've regressed in some ways. And... I think the the objections might come from the left rather than the right, which is how it was before. You know, like the Christians mm-hmm. were freaked out. But now if I did it, it's like there might be an, you know, objection. Like, how, how can you, a white cis male, make an Asian woman come in front of you? It's a violation. You know, there's a lot of fear about violation. And, and um, it all comes from the same Puritan source, right or left. You know, we're all scared of sex in our country. Um, it's just kind of shifted into sex equals abuse, you know. To some, um, and consent issues get, you know, become, you know, p- panicky. Which, understandably, you know, there's plenty of, plenty of violation to talk about, but it can sometimes lead to a uh, o- overly cautious, you know, uh, no one can have sex now because someone's being violated.
0: Well, whenever you meld sex with intimacy. I mean, those are, that's basically nitroglycerin for a lot of people. I mean, it really mm. kind of hits hits very, very centrally, and, and a lot of people get very, you know, scared, intimidated. And short bus is really, I mean, it does have actual sex in it, um, but it's an examination of intimacy, which is why I think it's so, and, and with a spiritual bent, like all of uh-huh. your work. Uh, which is why it's so fascinating. Oh,
3: Frank DeMarco, my longtime cinematographer. We really, you know, we love film, and that was the, la- you know, last moment of, of film, actual celluloid being used. And I needed to do a lot of long takes because there was a lot of improv involved. And when you have a a sixty millimeter camera, you can get a twenty minute mag on the camera, twenty minute take. Uh, for lighter than you would a 35 millimeter camera so a lot of digital formats can go longer but you know you're not really going to go past 20 minutes
0: and you can also burn a lot of film waiting for an orgasm
3: yes we (laughs) we did do that a lot
0: So wait, but what was it like cutting this? I mean, I assume that the ratio of, of what was used to unused, the, the the shooting ratio, as you call it, it was very high compared it was to massive. most narrative. It was massive, and that's and that's why it was so profound for me because I didn't feel
1: like I didn't have the skills to do it, and I had to I had to learn by doing it. I mean, now now that I've worked in TV more, um, where sometimes you're shooting three cameras all day long and you know, you have to give them an assembly two days after they finish shooting. I've honed better skills at knowing how to be efficient that way, but at that time it was new to me. So um, the fact that it was a movie being made with friends and it felt personal because I was very adjacent and John was my friend and it was a topic I loved and the tone, it was a musical, like all of those things were sort of um, neutralizing to let me um, accept the challenge ahead of me. But it was very hard. Um, I I mean, also part of it was the trust. I could tell John, well, you shot the lesbian uh, room scene as four hours of footage, and it's a ten-minute scene, and you know, it's going to take you know a week and a half just to manage it. And John was fine with that. I mean, we were. I I
3: was just shocked that because of the way we were shooting, many of the actors were not uh, very professional or experienced, and so I allowed them much more leeway in their dialogue and paraphrasing which made them better but that meant we had to shoot a hell of a lot and there I was shoot, and, and I also told them no don't worry about continuity meaning you know they would drink on a certain line in one take and, and then not drink on the second take and that's hard to edit if you're not doing the same thing which is why TV is very assiduous about continuity cuz they have to move so quickly in their editings so
1: but that was the fun part about editing it. Because you can problem solve all of those things. I thought
3: we were going to have to jump no. cut. Jump cut means you know you jump ahead a few seconds, and people, you know, aren't doing the exact same thing. And but he did much less jump jump cutting than I expected because he's so good. He found the cut points that made it seem continuous, and we use the jump cut just for special occasions because you can overdo it. Right. Unless you're Lars von Trier, who does it nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> and does it well.
1: But but it was also about the way it was shot because Frankie would shoot different kinds of sizes and different yeah. kinds of coverage. So, you know, in a very f- kind of fluid way as you as they would feel their way through the scene. It wasn't only the actors learning what it was about. It was Frankie and it was John. So the footage would feel different ways throughout the day, and that means it, it was cuttable. It wasn't the same. I wasn't getting the same static version of a shot with different words. I was getting all sorts of different stuff.
3: Yeah, like so a panoply he had, of stuff. He had a ton of possibilities, and musically, that was another example of people doing different hats. Like my assistant Louis Schwadron is a consummate arranger and composer, and. He took a song written by someone else that Justin Bond sings at the end. We all get it in the end and did this incredible orchestration that became score as well. And he was my assistant, you know, trying to find female condoms, you know, for certain safety, <laughs> safety scenes. You know, we're not we weren't supposed to be giving, you know, uh, Cialis out because that's like a insurance issue. But the actors were, you know, taking it on their own.
0: They take care of themselves, I'm sure. I have to ask you about Hedvig and kind of how that came about, because that was your gigantic break. You started out as an actor. Um, I assume you were in Chicago, then you were in Big River on Broadway. Yeah. And then you spent, I think, a fair amount of time in LA. Uh, You were in the cult classic Paul Michael Glaser film, Band of the Hand, which is, by the way... It's not a good movie, but it's a lot better than you'd expect. It's a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it had a I kind think of a so. It's it's a fun movie. <laughs> Tell me about the pivot from acting and doing TV and all that stuff to meeting Steven Trask and kind of like developing Hedwig into the gigantic icon thing that it is now.
3: I really was uh, bored. You know, I I was very um Spoiled in some ways because I was working with amazing writers at times, including John Guare, Larry Kramer, Keith Reddin. You know, I, I, I did a lot of great, especially great theater. Uh, the TV and film tended to be more money stuff and more fun, you know, like MacGyver and Band of the Hand and Head of the Class or whatever and commercials. And I survived doing the voice of the Dunkaroos <laughs> animated cartoon uh, a, a kangaroo. How do you do your Dunkaroos? You know, that kind of thing. Oh, my Which God. Which I hear, I hear they're bringing
2: back. Um, yeah. I grew up with that, John.
3: know. <laughs> <laughs> when I mention that, people are more excited than any of my Tony Award winning work. They're like, Dunkaroos, what didn't you tell me? Um, and in Australia, too, with my terrible Australian accent. I had a good time as an actor, but was also getting a little bored. I do a Secret Garden, which I enjoyed, but for a year it wasn't enjoyable. After a while, and I did I didn't wasn't able to improvise, and I, I wanted to get more rock and roll. I wanted to learn about the freedom of ad libbing and letting things happen in the moment, which I admired in stand up comedians, drag queens, and punk rockers. So I thought, with Stephen Trask, let's write something that involves stand up comedy, drag, punk rock, combined with you know the storytelling tightness of a broadway show like gypsy and let's throw in animation and incredible you know costume and wigs and oh you you do wigs you know you work at kim's videos give me a wig you know and madonna stylist Ariane phillips you want to do this great you know it's to me it's like that stone soup story i think it was tom sawyer you know he's cooking a stone and people like what is that it's a stone soup what the hell well i've got some carrots let me add that And he's like great (laughs) you know and then of course it becomes a real soup with everybody's additions and i love that way of working and that's how i'm working writing songs right now you know under lockdown so give me what you got and i'm much more excited in a hungry talented person than a established fart no matter how talented, because they're willing to take a risk. And Kate's learned from Shortbus and then teaches me things on how to talk to girls or Anthem. And, and I really can't think of a better editor ever, you know, that I've had any contact with. Uh, we work with the best producer, which is Howard Gertler, who made How to Survive a Plague and Crip Camp, too, Brian Weller does comic books. He writes novels. He his I didn't know his music as, as much mm. until he fell in to, to writing for me. And then I think he's a true musical genius, can work in any form. So to me, I love to be the place where people can learn and surprise themselves and me. I met a guy in Grinder, Michael Zumbrun, who did the projections for the Origin of Love tour and the anthem you know, abstract visuals for the marathon and did a little thing for me at Joe's Pub. And he's, I challenge him. I'm like, can you try that? I've never done it. Let's do it. And that is my way of working forever. And I also love to be the helper to someone else's project. I love to direct other people's stuff or act in other people's stuff. Like Shrill, you know, on on Hulu. Oh, you
0: you were so evil on that show.
3: I'm an evil queen. Uh, my Worst Gay Nightmare, and it pays my bills and takes care of my mom's health care, and I love it.
0: And, of course, you know, Hedvig has the criterion treatment. What did you think when you heard uh, that it was going to get the criterion collection <laughs> treatment?
3: Well, Hedvig is always clung on by broken Lee press-ons even off Broadway <laughs> the film was a flop people found it on DVD
0: but everyone has seen it everyone i know has seen this film at least once mostly mo- multiple times and we times. never
3: saw a cent you know it's just funny you know we we got paid to make it <laughs> wow. but we never you know there was no there was no residuals or or uh, hollywood accounting upside at the end no yeah it's hollywood accounting it's not enough m- <laughs> money involved to actually sue them cuz you'd probably lose money if you sued but that's okay you know it's like the personal dividends, the creative ones, are way more than the money. And then when we got to Broadway, we, we, I did make some money uh, replacing myself. Uh, I, I came in later in the run. And we'll, we'll hopefully do it in West End if theater isn't canceled forever. And to me, the joy of doing something new always outweighs the, the less lucrativeness of being ahead of your time. Short Bus certainly didn't make a lot of money, but a lot of people saw it and affected them strongly, too. Yeah. You know, it's not really available now. We're hoping that the great Criterion will, you know, who has been kindly making noises and, and loves Short Bus, you know, making noises about doing that. We'll, we'll oh, that turn would be it, so great. Yeah, because they did an incredible job for, for Hedvig, closely involved with me and Stephen and, and our collaborators to make a box set for the ages and I can die safely knowing that Hedvig will be will live, you know, beyond us. And we hope to do the same for Shortbus.
0: I read a rumor once. Was it true that you wanted to use a different song for the end of Hedwig and you couldn't get the rights? Yeah,
3: when we were off-Broadway or off-off, really, at a club called Fez, which was a cabaret space, the ending was a German translation of You Light Up My Life, <laughs> you know, which was the... Biggest song of the 70s, you light up my life.
1: It was transcendent. Joseph Brooks, right?
3: Joe Brooks wrote it. Debbie Boone sang it. It was huge. And Joe reviewed Hedvig and said, we were not wholesome enough.
0: Which is very ironic considering how Mr. Brooks ended up.
3: That's right. He was indicted in 90 counts of rape and sexual assault and killed himself to avoid prosecution. Yeah. So let that be, you know, if anyone else fucks with Hedvig, (laughs) just know there is a curse. And of course, Steven was much more interested in an original song for the finale and came up with Midnight Radio literally in one night, right before our dress rehearsal, you know, and it was insanely good.
0: I can honestly say when I saw it, I saw it three times. The first time I saw at the end with Midnight Radio and, you know, Tommy came out. Mm-hmm. I just started crying and mm-hmm. it's just it was just one of those moments one of those magical moments you have with any creative work that happens once I don't know in a year or two years whatever
3: and that moment could never happen in the film because in the play I in effect impersonate all the characters she rips her drag off in frustration during a song the way I saw Mistress Micah do something similar at Squeeze Box, which was the rock and roll drag club that Hedvig was spawned from, and where I learned from all these incredible queens, she rips it off, and the stage goes dark, and then the, the Tommy song begin, begins, and she kind of rises into the light as Tommy, and you know the whole metaphor of we are two halves of one kind of becomes true, and she becomes both of them, and then. Is a kind of unified creature singing midnight radio of a. She's a hybrid, a gen- really. Yeah. she's a hybrid, and she's a gender of one. You know, I never think of the char- the story or the character as a trans, a trans, uh, story because she was forced into this operation for the wrong reasons in effect, a kind of a victim of the binarchy, which is a term I use in the Origin of Love Tour. And it's like, you have to be this if you're a man. And if you're not a man, then you have to be that. You have to be the woman that we've decided you are. And we're going to cut off your penis and all those things that, you know, the patriarch and the binarchy and the, and the world wants you to be if you to fit into the binary. And she says, no, I'm a gender of one. And at the end, you know, she has to go through a war to find a wholeness. You know, and then she walks out of our lives into her new life, naked, saying, "This is me." You know, the angry inch and all. I, this is what I am, and it's beautiful.
0: It is beautiful, and you know, and it, and the way that you chose to end the film. Because in a way, I mean, unlike theater, film literalizes everything. Like you're seeing it on the screen and it, it is very literal as compared to theater when everyone's kind of in a communal agreement that, okay, we're going to see this thing, but we're in a theater. In a film, you have to rethink it. And the way you rethought it for the film is really brilliant.
3: Yeah, we took the risk uh, that paid off of, of having another actor playing Tommy. And, you know, me kissing myself would have just been too conceptual. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> even if I gained 40 pounds for one of the roles which is the only way I could have got an Oscar and of course Hedvig the world wasn't ready for Hedvig at the time the, the let's say the mainstream world and we never would have been up for an Oscar then or on Broadway but um, you were
0: for Golden Globe and you came in that wonderful suit
3: yes that was an unexpected thing that, you know, that we were nominated for, for the Golden Globes um, but you know it was a kind of you know, freak, freak uh, vote, but we don't mind, you know, it's like when you do some different stuff, you know, safe is never going to be up for an Oscar and Julianne Moore and Todd Haynes and should have been. Right. But we, you know, who make things know that awards, you know, are fake, you know, they're, they're wonderful uh, commercials to help other people hear about things. They don't mean they're the best films. It's not always the best performance. It's the one with a, a money campaign behind it.
0: But you know, things are turning. You know, Parasite, which is a South Korean film which changes tone radically in the middle and talks about income inequality, one Best Picture.
3: Yes, and Moonlight one which never would have got close to that five yeah. years before. And I think that has a lot to do with the membership of the Academy, which is changing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, it's just less commercial. So all the commercial people are like, maybe we should make a category for shitty films. Remember, they were going to do that last year. <laughs> they they, they weren't going to call, call them it that, shitty. <laughs> they called them commercial. I don't know. What were
2: they going to call that? Most popular or something?
3: Most popular. but that's Popular, like, yeah. Popular,
2: like high school. She's the most popular. It's so they can give Marvel movies Oscars.
3: I know. They were desperate to get the Marvel movies in there, with most, you know, 90% of which are drivel. And I love Marvel as a kid. It's not superheroes I hate, it's just the stupidity of having to sell these things in China and such. So they remove anything interesting. Not that I hate China. I am no Trump. <laughs> but, you know, when you go lowest common denominator, uh, things suffer and there is a joy that hedvig which never sanded off its corners found its way in korea and japan and eventually will be in in china you know didn't pass the censor this time around but you know the, a lot of people there want to do it and uh it's been running in korea for 15 years i might even go out and do a benefit because the company that has been doing it is threatened by the covid shutdown and oh wow. out and do some benefit concerts there. But I, you know, Brian and I have performed for 10,000 people in Seoul, you know, doing Hedvig shows. That's so fantastic.
0: I want to know what advice you have for filmmakers or content creators, each of you, except go make that film or movie or whatever. Like if you take that out, just the just do it advice, what advice do you have?
3: Well, the just do it is the best, of course. And I've never been a film school person. Tell me if I'm right, Brian Cates, but Oftentimes people who did go to film school said the best thing about it was meeting the other people that they would continue to work with.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. But for me, it was also about, I was always afraid of equipment unless it was post-production equipment. I didn't, I was afraid of light meters and lenses and being outside and tripods, but I wanted a flatbed. I wanted film, but the theory, I ate up the theory. So so the cinema studies for me was only accessible through the curation of great professors. And I film school to me validated the entire world of theory that was um, just too 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 complicated and too foreign for me to get into by my by myself.
2: I have no formal art education in any medium. So my advice might be a little bit more abstract, but it was something along the lines of make sure that you're doing it for yourself and right with yourself as in if you're just waiting for the right connections or you're if all the networking is solely to get a leg up then i don't know but if you're doing it for yourself if you're making the stuff in your bedroom or if you're going if you have the initiative solely because you have that passion then i feel when the opportunity comes whether you're networking or whether it falls in your lap or whatever your the path may be for you i think you'll be all the more ready and the work will be all the better once it starts flowing in that context does that make sense
0: yeah absolutely i mean what you're talking about is kind of like making stuff From a personal place and, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to make it real, make it real for you, regardless of kind of how it how it plays out. And I think that, you know, at least from John's work that I've seen, the one thing that runs through it all is this element of spirituality and it's an element of togetherness that we're all one. And these are very powerful, powerful concepts and very difficult to communicate. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons that, like, you know, your work is so interesting is that you do communicate it in these really unique and interesting ways. And Anthem Homunculus is is absolutely a great example of it.
3: Thank you. (laughs) I love a blowjob in midday. I can't wait for real blowjobs.
0: Well, I can say on behalf of everyone who listens to Anthem Homunculus or kind of experiences this work we're all lucky to have the work.
3: Yeah, and this this lockdown is hopefully focusing. I mean, there's people who are just moment to moment trying to survive and we're lucky enough that we you know, we can work and do stuff and have have a moment to breathe and think, but don't squander that time, you know, to find out what is important to your life, to the country, to all of our futures. You know, this is a landmark year. For many people, and for our country, and it's you know what's going to happen electorally, economically, artistically, you know, th- th- will resonate for the next decades, you know, and it's a very, very powerful time. Hashtag unprecedented
2: time
0: It has been so great Having you guys on here Thank you so much John Cameron Mitchell Brian Cates And Brian Weller uh, The podcast is Anthem Homunculus uh, It is really amazing And you should go Check it out Thank you so much For being here On the podcast with me I
3: appreciate oh, it thank you, thank you. My
0: pleasure And this has been The Outcast Presented by Outfest For more go to Outfest.org Slash the Outcast The Outcast Is executive produced By Ismail El-Sharif And Alan Koningsberg. Special thanks to Damien Navarro and the entire Outfest team. Music by West One Music Group. For more information about Outfest, the film festival, the programs, and all the ways that you can help support LGBT voices, go to Outfest.org. The Outcast is a production of Milton Ventures Media and Triple Fire Productions. I'm Dave Kittridge. Thank you so much for listening, and catch you next time.